Revelation, as we've seen, is a very simple book. Jesus has a message to his servants. And he asks us to read, understand, and keep. Read, understand, do. And what he wants us to read and understand is this message that takes what was and what is and what is to come and gives us a lesson. And the lesson is to how to be a great martyreo, witness, or martyr. Jesus wants us to serve others. Jesus wants us to serve others and set self aside. And in doing so, he wants us to follow the path that he's blazed for us and gain part of his own reward, which is to be a king and a priest in the universe. And we do that now by serving, by following his commands, by being a good servant. We've been talking about the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, and we've seen what was and what is at that time. And, of course, he's also telling us something about what is to come because these churches probably represent ages. We've seen the apostolic age represented in the church of Ephesus. It's a great church with truth. But to be God's witness, truth alone is not enough, even though God really emphasizes the importance of truth. And we'll see more about that today. But we also need love. Without love, we're a clanging gong. Even if we give ourselves to be killed, if we have not love, it's not worth anything, 1 Corinthians tells us. And then the early church, the church that brought down Rome with the blood of the martyrs, which included not just people who died, but people who were unafraid of death, which is the key thing about being a witness. Unafraid of rejection from the world. The Smyrna church, and Jesus says, I'm the one who's died and now is living, and I want you to not fear death. Stand in the face of death. And if you do, you have life. If you'll take refining now and stand in faith against this persecution, then when the consuming fire of God comes, it will not hurt you because you've already been refined. Then we saw Pergamos last time. Pergamos was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And he said, this is where Satan's throne is. But the church at this point in time is starting to get syncretized where it wants both ways. All this and Jesus too. And what Jesus says is you got a lot of great things going on, but you got this spirit of Balaam and you're allowing it to corrupt your church. Balaam was a true prophet, but really wanted the things of the world as well. And part of the message is you can't have it both ways. Reject the world. If you want intimacy with the world, you'll get it, but they'll bring you death, just like Balaam died. But if you will reject the world, I'll give you intimacy beyond anything you can imagine. The hidden manna, the white stone, a special invitation just between you and me. And this week, instead of Balaam, we have another amazing Old Testament character, which is Jezebel. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Verse 18, Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel or messenger of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, 
she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searched the minds and hearts and I will give each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first thing we see here is that the Son of God is pictured in this particular letter as one who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now this is not the very approachable Jesus that we tend to see in the paintings. This is Jesus in a different role. Let's look at Revelation 19 where we see another instance where Jesus is depicted as having eyes of fire. And we can see where we're headed with Revelation. Sometimes people are prone to say that the God of the Old Testament moderated in the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was vengeful God in the God of the New Testament. But the Bible is very clear. God never changes. Jesus is the first and the last, he tells us here. The beginning and the end. And in chapter 19, verse 11, we read, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. See, same picture. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his side name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And skip down to verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth, who sat on his horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." So here's Jesus, the one who has the eyes of fire, is coming to set things right on earth. You know, we had a day a few years back where all of America celebrated. I was, was watching during my exercise time a little documentary on the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. And there was a baseball game, and suddenly chants of USA, USA broke out in the whole stadium, and the players were talking in this documentary saying, we were wondering what in the world's going on. We knew something special was happening. We were, what, what happened? Is, is the Olympics isn't going on? Somebody went a soccer game? What's happening? Well, there was a national celebration that broke out. Because a person had died, 
And that's because we as people, when we know someone is evil, when we know someone has done injustice, we want to see justice done. We want to see things put right. And from our perspective, we think that that was the right thing to do, but we didn't know Osama bin Laden's heart. We didn't know where his heart was at that particular point in time. We just knew he was the mastermind behind this terrible thing that happened to America. But God knows the hearts, and he knows how to set things right for sure, 100%. We will see as we get into the and things that are to come section of the book, that there'll be people under the altar saying, God, how long are you going to wait till you avenge our deaths? And God, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Well, he does get there. And he comes with flames of fire on a white horse and a sword coming out of his mouth. And he is the one that rules with a rod of iron. And as we've seen, what he is asking us to do is to stand with him. And if we do stand with him, he's going to share his reign with us. He's going to share his kingship with us. He's going to rule with a rod of iron, and he's going to share that with us. Because that's what he's asking us to do. By being great witnesses, he's asking us to qualify for that reward. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for the works, the last are more than the first, nevertheless. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now again, this book is written to Jesus' servants. These are believers. And believers can have rewards and they can lose rewards. This is all about deeds and works. It's not about whether we had saving faith or not. And as you can see here, servants can be seduced. Servants can fall into sin because we still have a free will. It's just that if we do, there's very severe negative consequences. And this book is asking us to eschew these negative consequences that come with the world and follow what Jesus is offering us. Well, Jezebel is a very interesting Old Testament character. It's not for sure who she represents, but what's interesting here is the fundamental problem that Jesus has with Jezebel is that they allow her to teach and seduce. They allow. Let's look at this word allow in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says... No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow, will not permit, will not tolerate you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God will not allow that. So here's Jezebel, who is a prophetess, self-proclaimed, is a position of authority And what God is saying is, there's an authority figure that is doing wrong and foul things, and you're not resisting sufficiently. Isn't that interesting? When there's an authority that is wrong, and we have the ability to resist, then that's something that we need to do. Now, clearly, Jezebel is somebody that God is giving time to repent to. So no matter how warped or how destructive someone is, God's not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to him. He wants everyone to have time. But for us, it's our job to resist. Now, sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
Balaam had a different motivation. Balaam was a true prophet, and he wanted to have his prophet office intact, but also have the things of the world. He wanted both. All this in Jesus too. Jezebel, on the other hand, appears to just care about worldly power and wants to use the office in the church or use religious position to gain advantage from the world. So who does Jezebel represent? It's not clear. It's obviously representative because the actual Jezebel has been dead many years at the time this is written. But thinking about the historical era, there's something that certainly fits from my standpoint because the institutional part of the church had during this era from 500 to 1517 AD, this middle-aged church became an incredibly powerful political organization. And in fact, it was so political and so oriented towards control that not only did it corrupt the ordinances, it also withheld from people the scripture. And saying, we will tell you what the scripture says. This is too complex for you. It's too hard for you. Now, we know that there were some great Christians during this time period. And we call this the period of the Catholic Church because Catholic just means universal. And there were no denominations at this point in time per se the way we think of them today. But the church still had great people in it. We saw that. I know your works, love, service, faith, you're patient. And it's getting better now. And in fact, toward the end of this era is when you had Wycliffe. And he said, hey, let's put the Bible in people's common tongue. And he had Tyndall who said, hey, not only let's put it in the common tongue, let's go back to the original manuscripts and make it as accurate as possible. And Tyndall lost his life for that testimony. So there's great things going on. It's not the institution that we're in that matters. It's our heart that matters. But you have organic Christianity, let's call it, an institutional Christianity. In the sense of institution as organization, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to use it as a negative term to mean we're focusing on benefiting the leadership and the organization over the people. The organic church, what the leaders are supposed to do is serve the people. And here, during this era, you had a lot of abuse. And people became princes and bishops, basically because they bought the position, or because they were really good politicians, not because they were servants. Not because they were investing in the people. And Tyndall, in fact, said that he wanted in England the plowboys to know more about the scripture than the bishops. And in fact, it took place. It happened. So you have this time period where the church has become very corrupt. There's a couple of instances I can mention to just point it out. The Knights Templar, 1100s to 1300s, became a powerful multinational corporation. In fact, they became so rich and so powerful that the king of France disbanded them, essentially, in order to basically take their money and power. Another example would be the Papal States. You know, Italy as a country, as we know it, didn't really form until the 1860s. And until then, it was multiple states like the Kingdom of Sicily or the Kingdom of Venice. The Papal States were also one of the kingdoms, and they were run from Rome. And when it was disbanded, it went all the way down to the Vatican. And if you go to the Vatican today, it's full of amazing treasures. Again, because that's a vestige of this organization becoming so rich and so powerful. And the problem wasn't the riches and the power. There's nothing wrong with riches. 
The problem was that in many cases that became the priority over the people. And again, not always, because otherwise God wouldn't say, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience, and things are getting better. The problem was you had this happening and God was not satisfied with the amount of resistance that was given to it. Now, I would say this would apply to any authority at any place at any time. When there's someone claiming moral authority, when there's someone in a position of authority that's abusing that authority, and they're claiming a moral right to do so, it's our job to resist that. And if we don't, we're not really doing God's betting of being the kind of witnesses, the kind of martyreo that God wants us to be. Let's just look at this character Jezebel, and we can see some of the things she did, and maybe we can recognize this in things we've seen in our lives. We first meet Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 16. In verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned in Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Jezebel is from Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon are two Phoenician cities that God left remaining as some of the cities that were supposed to be dispossessed. But since Israel didn't do as they were told... God left some of the cities, and these were two of them that he left to say, this is going to be a thorn in your side. In fact, though, God says, this is in Judges 3, I'm going to leave these here so that you will learn war. Which is very interesting. So God left Sidon so they would learn war. And we're going to see some of that that Jezebel is going to bring. But isn't it interesting that God not only wants us to resist moral authorities that are off base. He wants us to be warriors. And isn't that why in Ephesians 6 it says, put on the whole armor of God, and then he goes through and dresses us up like a centurion soldier, but with spiritual weapons? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We're in a fight. We're in a battle. And we're supposed to be fighting every day. Well, Jezebel is an earthly version of Satan's way of fighting. So now Elijah the Tishbite came and said to Ahab in chapter 17, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. And so there's a long drought. And it goes right back to Ahab and his disobedience. And during this drought, Elijah hid out. And then finally, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, okay, I'm going to end the drought. So let's look at Elijah re-engaging with Ahab. Chapter 18, verse 5, And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land and all the springs of water and all the brooks. Maybe we'll find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive. So in verse 7, Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. So Obadiah says, How have I sinned that you're delivering your servant to the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, 
There's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they've said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation. They could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah's here, and it shall come to pass. As soon as I'm gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I don't know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel, here here she is again, killed the prophets of the Lord? So Jezebel went through and killed the prophets of God. But Obadiah hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah's here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. So then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Verse 18, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's the first strategy we see of Jezebel. She comes in, she's Sidonian, she's one of... Ahab's wives, and she brings in the Baal worship. But it's not just competition, it's monopoly. She goes and kills the prophets of God. And so now when people need something, because in this culture they expect that there's a a spiritual force behind everything, so if they don't have God to appeal to, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to go to Baal prophets. And don't believe for a minute this wasn't an immensely profitable venture. So they go and they pay the money to the Baal priest, and the Baal priest probably includes some kind of that gross immorality, some kind of pornography, which that sells too, right? So you got this big, th- think brothel, bordello, and you've got also uh, fortune telling and kind of pay to play. What, what do you want? We'll give it for you. So you get what you want and you, and you have your, your central pleasures met all, at, all in one stop. So Jezebel now has this, has this racket where not only is she influencing people, she's, she's got a big cash position going in. She's not going to wait and have, have that take over. She eliminates the competition coming in. So, you know, this story, Elijah goes and he says, Hey, you, you prophet, whoever answers with fire wins. And so he gets the Baal prophets over there and they're cutting themselves and yelling and everything. And, and Elijah spends the day taunting them. So nothing happens. Waits till he gets the evening sacrifice. Has him douse the altar with water. Fire comes down, licks up the water, takes the sacrifice. And then the people, of course, say, okay, we get it. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah says, well, get those false prophets and bring them down here and slay them. And they do. An amazing victory. One against several hundred. So in verse 19, you'd think Jezebel is going to go back to Sidon, right? Nope, not Jezebel. Chapter 19, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also how he'd executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life to Beersheba. So Carmel is up in the north of Israel, Beersheba near the south. And he left his servant there. And he went and sat down under a tree and said, man, I might as well die now. So Jezebel 
obviously understands something about people. But what she's doing is taking use of the fear that he has. And it works. It's amazing. Here's this guy that's done the most amazing thing ever. And boom, Jezebel found a weakness, exploited it, he's run away. You know, many times when God asks us to stand up to a corrupt authority and we have a great victory, we're prone to relax and say, well, it's over. And actually, it's just a prelude to a bigger fight. We have to be prepared for that. Now, interestingly enough, God does say to Elijah, look, I'm going to give you a replacement, Elisha, and I'm going to ask you to anoint a different king. And then Elijah doesn't do much before he hands that over. So Elijah is asked to anoint Jehu as king, but that's not who's king next. The next king is after Ahab dies is Ahaziah. So this is in 2 King 1 verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So he's going to go ask the Baal prophets, Am I going to recover from this? And so then God tells Elijah, Go and tell Ahaziah, Hey, is there not a prophet in Israel? Why are you asking the god of Ekron? So Ahaziah says in verse 7, What kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? So they said, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. He said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. They went up to him and there he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he spoke to them, man of God, the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, I'm a man of God. Then let the fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then that happens again. And then the third band of 50, the guy comes and says, please, please don't kill us. <laughs> and God says, go ahead and go with him. So he goes with him and he pronounces to Ahaziah what is going to transpire to him. That he's going to die and he's going to be dispossessed. And so that's what happens. And then Elijah goes up to heaven. Elisha takes his place. Jehu becomes king. Jehu is going to be the one at whose hand Jezebel perishes. So we see with Elijah that he had this tremendous victory. This amazing victory and then just kind of blew it but God says look okay you've done awesome I'm going to go ahead and let someone else in here but before you go all the way let's kind of rewind and replay and let's let the king threaten you and you win it's really cool he has a recovery and then God lets him pass the baton so that's really cool so Jezebel's going to meet her in through Jehu but before we get there let's look at another episode And it's the incident of Naboth, Naboth's vineyard. We see Naboth's vineyard episode in chapter 21. Chapter 21, it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite, this is while Ahab is still alive, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is the plain, you know it as Armageddon, Har Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, Jezreel, all the same thing. It's up in the north part of Israel. Next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab, Samaria, Israel, the same thing. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near next to my house. And for it, I will give you a vineyard better than that. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And of course you know that when Israel was given the land and it was divvied up into parcels, God gave it to families for perpetual possession 
It was a sacred thing for them. It wasn't just an economic thing. It was for them and their posterity forever. And Naboth understands that. And he said, look, this isn't just a piece of property that's an asset. This is my family heritage. I'm not going to give this up. So, verse 4, Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word Naboth the Jezreelite had spoke to him. For as he had said, I will not give inheritance of your my fathers. And he laid down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. So here you got Ahab, the king, who's in charge of everything, but he can't have this one thing. And so he goes into a sullen state of despair. I don't know. Have, have you ever done that where you lose perspective? The song Today is Beautiful, you might have heard, is a song about perspective. It's written about one of our grandsons who was in Disney World. He was, they say, four years old, three or four years old. And his sister, who's a year and a half older, was pushing the stroller, and he, she wouldn't let him push the stroller, so he totally melted down. In Disney World, the happiest place on earth. So you've got all these things around that are there to make you happy. But I want the stroller, and I want to push the stroller. Well, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? So now what Jezebel should have done is gone to Ahab and say, look, there's two circles. You're in the victim circle. You're letting circumstances dictate your happiness. You get out of the victim circle and come over here to the circle of choice and live your values and and make the best of circumstances. Well, Jezebel's point is not to make Ahab a constructive person. Her point is to make him dependent on her. So what she does is she says, hey, look, why are you not eating? He said, "Eh, you know, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. No problem. So she sets up this scheme where two worthless men go to a banquet, accuse Naboth of heresy, and go out and stone him. And then she comes back in and says, hey, you can have your vineyard now. He's dead. Well, again, what Jezebel is doing here is using intrigue and violence in order to win favor. So she knows how to use fear. She knows how to use violence. She knows how to set up structures that create patronage systems for herself where she has power and money rolling in. And she knows how to curry favor with those in power. Nice nice lady, huh? So now let's look at her demise in 2 Kings chapter 9. So in 2 Kings chapter 9, we see Jezebel's death. Now Jehu has dispatched Ahaziah and he goes to the city. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. So you got the picture here is there's a window in the gate in the walled city. She's looking out the window and she's put on her full makeup and and dolled up her hair. So as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? Now here's what she's saying. Zimri was a guy who had overthrown the king at an earlier time. And within seven days, Zimri had been overthrown himself. He didn't have the adequate support. So here's what I think Jezebel's doing. Jezebel is saying, you know, you don't have the kind of support you really need to make this stick. Who is she suggesting he needs with her face all dolled up and her hair all dolled up? Well, remember, she's a madam. She uses sexual perversion as a business. She's a manipulator. She knows how to curry favor with power. It seems fairly obvious to me that what she's saying is, you need to make an alliance with me. Maybe even you should take me as your wife, and then we'll do this together. Well, Jehu looks up at the window and says, who's on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, throw her down. 
So some of the people closest to her, the eunuchs who would take care of the queen or the harem, were like, they probably did, were tired of working for somebody like this, wouldn't you be? And so they see a chance and they stick their heads out and he says, throw them down. So she go, they go and they pitch her out the window and she dies. Now, to fulfill the prophecy, dogs came and ate her and there was not, hardly anything left her skull and her palms. And that fulfilled the prophecy because God wanted to make very clear when people abuse their authority, when they have positions of authority and they abuse to manipulate and control other people, that's something that he really doesn't like. You can see that Jezebel's violent death is kind of mirrored back in our Revelation passage. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her in a great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know I'm he who searches the minds and hearts. The wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. And sexual immorality is a sin that has a particularly adverse effect on us. We can look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Clearly, we can commit sexual immorality and be God's servants. But if we do, there's a particularly adverse consequence to us, more than other sins. And perhaps it's because we are feeding our appetites at the expense of others. So we're training our heart to be doing exactly the opposite of what God put us here to do, to learn to serve. And we're becoming a slave to our appetites and an obstacle to other people. And what God wants us to do is exactly the opposite. He wants us to be a pathway for other people and to master our appetites and serve Him. Verse 23, I will give to each one of you according to your works. Actions have consequences. And we're going to have consequences for our actions. He wants us to read, hear, and do. And what He wants us to do is to hold on to that we know that's true. And He wants us to resist corrupt authorities. Now to you and the rest in the Thyatira has not known this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. All these things Jezebel's doing, manipulation, using people's passions to enslave them, currying favor with authorities for your self-benefit, these are all Satan's tools. And these are the kinds of things Satan wants us to follow. But he says, don't have anything to do that. Just hold fast with what you have until I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. See, becoming born as one of God's children is something that just happens at a point in time. It never, it never goes away. Being an overcomer, a victor, means you've got to run all the way through the tape. You've you got to run the race all the way to the end. And if you do, I'll give him power over nations. Now, what was Jezebel constantly seeking? She was constantly seeking power, prestige, Wealth, fame, access to authority. What did she get? Eaten by dogs. Well, what God is saying is that's the world's way. If you go for worldly power, you're going you're gonna to end up eating by dogs. But if you will serve, if you will lay that aside, have nothing to do with it and serve others, including resisting perverse authority, 
then the reward I'm going to give you is power over the nations. And here he quotes Psalm 2 verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And this is clearly a messianic psalm. If you look up a little earlier, you say, I will declare the decree. Verse 7, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's what's quoted here. And Jesus says, Jesus quotes this psalm and then states at the end, as I have also received from my Father. So Jesus says, I've received power over the nations from my Father. If you will hold on to the end, I will give this power to you as well. So everything Jezebel wants for wrong reasons, I will give to you because you have the right reasons. And finally, in verse 8, I will give him the morning star. Now... The morning star is an interesting phrase. Isaiah 4.12 says this. Isaiah 4.12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So, it's very possible that the very first morning star was Lucifer. And how was it that he fell? He who is cut down to the ground, who's weakened the nations. So he says, I'm going to be strong over the nations. He actually weakens the nations. For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Sounds just like Jezebel, doesn't it? But instead, what Jesus says is, of course, Jesus is the morning, true morning star. And... In Second Peter one nineteen, it says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Proverbs calls the morning star wisdom. So it seems like the picture we have here is to be in great favor with God, to be in ascendancy over creation. And to have a position of amazing authority. Of course, Jesus has all that and he wants to share it with us. To be a power over the nations. To be the first over nations. But that just goes to overcomers. And the interesting thing that to be the overcomer, resisting bad authority, qualifies us to be a good authority. You lay your life down so that you may take it up. You give away power that you may be the most powerful. Arguably the most powerful man ever lived is George Washington because he fathered the most powerful nation that's ever been and what was it that George Washington did that was so miraculous he gave power he gave it twice at least twice he surrendered his sword to the Continental Congress at a time where it did not look like a very good choice he viewed it as the only way to perpetuate self-governance in America and then later after he'd been president for two terms he stepped down And created a precedent of peaceful transitions of power. King George commented something to the effect that if he actually did what he said he was going to do, he'd be one of the greatest men ever lived. And he was. And that's a picture of giving power that we may take it up. And that's what God promises here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have a great challenge today. Do we want to accept what Jezebel brings into the church? What Jezebel has in secular culture? What Jezebel offers us in government? Or will we resist? 
Will we resist those ideas when they come into our church? Will we resist those ideas when they come into our family? Will we resist those ideas when they come into our government? For we are warriors. And we are to war spiritually. But spiritual warfare isn't just prayer. It's also engagement. Never against people, but we do engage people. But we're engaging the ideas behind those people, the forces behind those people. What God wants us to do is stand. Stand for what's true. Stand for what's right. What God wants us to do is to be His witness. And what He promises us, if we will do that to the end, He will give us amazing rewards. Behold, I'm coming and my reward is in my hand. God, thank you for your grace that you have overcome. Please help us follow in your footsteps that we may overcome as well. In Jesus' name, amen.